Okay, today I want to talk about um, how we have to look a little bit deeper. There are various different layers. Uh, there is the very superficial outer layer of things. Uh, the way things appear at first glance. But many times, you know, like they say, don't judge a book by its cover. A lot of times, you know, we come to conclusions very quickly when we see something on the very superficial level, only externally, but it takes insight, it takes some thinking, or many times it takes somebody to point out to you, and you know what, it's more than what meets the eye over here. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, we like to think about a person. It says when you dress nicely, you uh, look good. So people have a, a good opinion of you. They think of you highly. If you uh, are not dressed, you dress sloppy, then people have a, a, a negative view of you. Uh, I remember I was at a uh, at a. Uh, a jury, they called me to the jury, and the judge was picking the jury, and then there's, there was this guy who's, uh, you know, had a ponytails up to his ankles, and with tattoos and rings all over, and the judge wouldn't pick him, and he was all upset. <laughs> well, the judge looked at the way he looked at, and he didn't have a very good opinion of him. But we know that a lot of times uh, we're quick to pass judgment, because it's not always what it looks like, and Especially when we talk about the power of one's soul, talk about a person's inside versus the looks on the outside. You know, sometimes people have very powerful souls and hearts and uh, are emotionally very, uh, very close. And even though externally, uh, maybe they don't practice all the mitzvot. Maybe they don't uh, do everything that somebody would expect. But yet these people are very profound and we should never really judge now the thing is that Hasidic thought always likes to find the mystical the inner, the deeper sense, the deeper meaning it does it across the board which means when you learn a parsha, when you learn let's say a story so you can read the story in the very simple, in the literal sense. And, of course, first and foremost, we have to read and understand the literal story. But then, when you start peeling away some layers, then you get to see that there is actually a lot more to what you've read in the beginning. There is depth, there is different ideas. And a lot of times, what you thought in the beginning was obviously one way, but then with some explanation and with some insight, you see, hey, wait a minute. Let's, discussion today, we'll, 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 uh, we'll discuss, you know, we all try to be helpful to others. We try to make an impact. We try to, first of all, we have a responsibility for our immediate families, you know, for our immediate families, for, and then we have our environment, our neighborhood, our people that we associate with. We try to be a positive example for them. So then you 
have to think sometimes, but what about if I associate with, with people that I think are on a lower level than myself? Uh, if I spend time with uh, people who are not as uh, smart as I am, who are not as learned as I am, who are not as talented as I am, who is not as capable as I am. Uh, so sometimes you may think, well, I'm spending time that I can really use uh, to be able to grow in my own level of, of knowledge. So why take the time to teach or to associate or to come in contact? Sometimes we actually think maybe coming in contact with others, I may lose maybe my special uh, level myself because uh, inevitable if I'm going to let, let's say, my children play with other children in the neighborhood who are not a positive influence, maybe they will pick up some bad things from the neighbors, and you know, I don't want them to pick that up. So, a lot of times we think that insulation, isolation to protect yourself, to create like this bubble to stay, be protected, is a way of connecting or doing the best you can. Let's say, even when we talk about our daily routine. So, of course, most of our day is spent doing what? Is spent in our occupation, whether it's our work, whether it's our house responsibilities, various different responsibilities. Most of the day is not actually spent on spiritual matters. We don't daven all day. We don't study Torah all day. We do is we do mundane things. Uh, okay, one needs to designate a small portion of the day to study Torah. One must designate a small portion of the day to do some prayers, but that's only a small section of the day. So, if one were to ask you, when are you closer to God? When are you actually doing what God wants you to do? Is it when you're praying? Is it when you're coming to the class on a Tuesday? Or is it when you're out there doing your work? Where, when are you achieving? When are you doing the purpose? When are you doing the goal uh, for what you were created for? What's more important? Is it more important to study? Is it more important to pray? Or is it more important to go on and doing your daily things? Of course, doing it in an honest, in a good, in a proper way. But what is, what is more important? You see, on the superficial level, of course, one would say davening, which is prayer, connecting to God spiritually, is a very powerful and a very important part, and that's a way that one feels spiritually uplifted. When one studies the Torah, the Torah being the wisdom of God, one is really connecting with, with God himself, with his wisdom. But when one is doing housework, or when one is doing uh, 
out there in the workforce doing computer work or whatever work they do, that has nothing to do with God. That has to do with the world. Everybody does that. Uh, Jewish, not Jewish, uh, all people. So you see, that is the uh, original, the first thought. When we read the story of this week, of course, this week we're reading the Torah, the Parsha Shlach. In Shlach, we read about the person that was sent out to scout the land of Israel. So, what happened was, God says to the Jewish people many times, the land that I promised you is a land that flows with milk and honey. God says to them, not oil, I mean, sometimes they think oil, but they're finding oil now too, but... uh, God says to them, I'm giving you a good land, a good and wide, a beautiful land. God says to them, God says, you can trust me. You can trust me. If I said to you that I'm going to give you a good land, it's going to be a good land. But the Jewish people, having their inherent nature, are very inquisitive. They say, no, we want to we wanna check it out. We want to check it out. We want to see... We want, they're coming to Moshe, Moshe, the leader, Moses, and they're telling Moshe, listen, we want to send spies or scouts. We want them to scout out the land, check out the land. We want them to give back a report. We want to see how we can actually conquer the land. Reluctantly, reluctantly, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu actually thought as Rashi points out, he thought, you know, Rashi gives an example. He says, you know, somebody was buying a car. Uh, Rashi example, somebody was buying a horse. And he asked the, uh, the uh, seller, is it okay if I take the horse for a ride to see how it does? So the owner says, of course, by all means. So he says, is it okay to um, take it on a hilly road as well? By all means, Hilly Road, it'll do fine. Go ahead, take it for a ride. How about over uh, a deep, steep valley? Can I take it there too? Go ahead, take it for a ride. The person, the buyer says, you know what? He's so confident and he allows me to do what I want. I don't need to take it for a ride. Because we see if there was any problem, he wouldn't let me do that. So Moshe Rabbeinu thinks, and he was hoping... When the Jews were asking, we want to scout out the land, we want to see the land, he was hoping that maybe if he told them, go ahead, send spies, go ahead, it's fine. Maybe they would change their mind. But no, the Jews would not change their mind. And they insisted. So Moshe Rabbeinu, with the approval, I guess reluctantly, but Hashem says, because Hashem doesn't stop us, it doesn't take away our freedom of choice. He encourages us, he pushes us a little bit, he gives us direction, he asks us to follow and do what's right, but he doesn't force us. He allows for us to go in the direction that we choose. And make mistakes. And make mistakes. If you want to make a mistake, God is not going to stop you from making a mistake. He's going to allow you to make the mistake. So, as much as Hashem told them that it's good, that he doesn't really need, they don't really need to check it out, that they can trust him, but if they insist that he allowed them to go. So Moshe Rabbeinu sends these scouts 
to scout out the land of Israel. And when these scouts, they come back, Hi. Oh, wow, twice a day. I, no, for tw- I, I gave food, but I didn't give plates. Come, come sit down. So, in any event, so, like this, I was going to give over the morning's class, but I can't do it now, shucks. I don't let anyone know. I don't let Okay. Um, so God allows us to make a mistake. So Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, if they insist, okay, I will allow, I will agree. So they go and they send out the spies. Now the spies go out there. Now already they're going out there with ideas to figure out and try to logically understand. But to make the long story short, they come back with a bad report. They say, yes, it's a good land, it's beautiful fruit, but they came back with a bad report. The bad report was their conclusion. They says, we cannot really, we cannot really conquer the land. He says, it's not, we cannot do so. And some of the things that they said were actually twisted because as Rashi points out, for example, Rashi says that they complained that it's a land that consumes its inhabitants. A land that it consumes its inhabitants. What does it mean? So Rashi says there was a lot of funerals there when they were there. They saw there was a lot of people dying there. There was all funerals. God said, God did it especially to protect them because they should not be noticed. Everybody should be preoccupied with their... Uh, grievance, with their uh, grieving, so that they would not pay attention to the spies, that they, they're there. But they turned it around, and they said it's a land which consumes its inhabitants. So, in any event, uh, they came back with this bad report, and they turned the heart of the people away. The Jewish people said, started crying. This was actually on the ninth day of Tishabov. That was the uh, beginning of the ninth day above of the troubles that we experienced and the ninth above in which we have the destruction of the temples of the temples and a lot of other tsarists, a lot of troubles befell the Jewish people in the ninth above. But it all started with that time when the spies, they came back and they said, we don't want to go. All the Jewish people started crying. Why, and why did they? I mean, why did they listen to them? Or they went really with a mission before they even headed out? They well, say. Uh, okay. So there's a lot to discuss in various different parts of it, but it seems like Moshe Rabbeinu didn't send evil people. On the contrary, the verse says that Moshe Rabbeinu sent people of great stature, who were important people, who were going to do uh, good. So the question becomes, how do people of, uh, of greatness make such a terrible mistake? And, okay, so the problem is because uh, they, they wanted to, and we were going to discuss this a little bit later at length, but in the simple, meaning they wanted to understand it logically. When you're going to scout a land, uh, you're going to scout a land because you're trying to figure out What's the way, how can you conquer the land? That's the purpose of scouting the land. You want to know how... So in other words, you want it to make sense logically. You want it to make sense logically. You want it to figure out how how the warfare is going to take place. So 
if you approach things just logically and say, okay, can I understand this? And if I don't understand this, so they, they made a mistake because they were missing the foundation of trust in Hashem that they will succeed and then figure out how they're going to and succeed. how do they lose that so fast after they have money? And no, because they, they were fine. But we're going to discuss this a little bit on the deeper, on the deeper level now. That's what we're going to have the discussion now. How did they make such a mistake? And I'm going to elaborate on the question that you asked a little bit because uh, the Jewish people had experienced, you know, sometimes they tell us you got to believe in something, you got to, uh, somebody tells you something. So, you know, like they say, you know, uh, believe half of what you see and nothing what you hear. So we don't know. Sometimes they tell you this, they tell you something else. You're not sure about what you hear. But sometimes you experience something. Sometimes you yourself experienced it. The Jewish people in that generation over there, I mean, they've experienced phenomenal uh, miracles, their whole existence. Consider this, that A, they were in the desert. Now, the desert, as we read the Medrash, the verse tells us, the Medrash is full with dangerous animals. You have snakes, you got scorpions, you got the seraph over there, you got dangerous animals. Now, None of these animals, none of these uh, hurt, did any damage to the Jewish people. Why? Because miraculously, it says the Aron, the Holy Ark, as well as the clouds of glory that were protecting the Jewish people, made the path for them and they killed all the dangerous uh, animals that were going to uh, cause damage to them. So, First of all, we see that they were protected, that nothing bad can happen to them. That's number one. That was a miracle, a tremendous miracle. Then consider the next miracle. How did they sustain themselves in the desert? So we know that they had the manna, the physical manna descend from the heavens. You know, by the way, you know what bracha, what blessing did they make on the manna? You know what blessing we make on bread? On bread we say hamotzi lechem. Min ha'aretz. Over here we said. That's my student. Can you tell what brought mine? Hamotzi lechem min hashamayim. It came from the shamayim. It came from the heavens. Good. So, so we have uh, the Jews being sustained in a just in a miraculous way. They're eating bread that comes from the heavens. Now, what did they drink? What did they drink while they were in the desert? So we know there was a miraculous rock over there, which is called the Well of Miriam, which provided for all their drinking water that they needed, plus other stuff from that well. That was a miracle too. So now you see the Jewish people are protected in the desert from the cl- through the clouds and the ark, so they're not in dangerous way. They are sustained physically by eating the manna and drinking the water of the well of Miriam. That's a miracle. That's fantastic miracles. Now, they had just experienced some wars that took place. So we know what happened with the Egyptians when the Egyptians were chasing them and they were 
uh, nowhere to go, God himself waged war against the Egyptians. And they all drowned in the, in the sea. And this splitting of the sea is considered to be one of the greatest miracles because the Talmud, when it talks about the miracle of splitting the sea, actually, it's a very interesting metaphor. The Talmud says it is so difficult for Hashem to make a match between a man and a woman to put two people together just as it's difficult for him to split the sea. <laughs> so we see that splitting of the sea is considered to be a very difficult miracle. It's not just a simple miracle. And yet, the Jewish people just experienced that. And nobody told it to them. They heard, they were there, they experienced it. How is it, how come, that they're doubting Hashem. How could they still be doubting God? When God tells them, I'm going to take you up to a land which is good, which is uh, plentiful, which is the place that I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to give it to you. And now the spies come back with a bad report. All the Jewish heart turned away. They don't believe anymore. They don't believe. It seems like a little strange Seems a little strange. Now, it also further, you know, there were two of the people that went there. It was a total of 12. Each tribe had one representative. And there were two representatives of the 12 who came back and they didn't agree with the rest of them. And one of them was Yehoshua, Yeshua bin Nun. He was... Uh, Moshe's assistant, so to say. He was Moshe's attendant. And then you had Kolev, Kolev ben Yifuna. And Kolev, and Kolev also couldn't quiet the people down because they were all up in arms. They were all against Moshe Rabbeinu now. It was just, and he sort of tricked them into trying to listen to him because he started off as if he's going to say something negative about Moshe Rabbeinu. He says, is this what Moshe Rabbeinu only did to us? Now people were expecting him to come and add some more juicy stuff over there to hold against Moshe Rabbeinu. He says, but he took us out of Egypt and he starts saying of the... I cannot understand how the Yidin can even turn on Moshe. Like, like he did everything for them. Like... Oloi what do they say? We Up, go up, we shall go up. Now, you would expect that Kolev's argument should be, again, along those lines. What would Kolev's argument be? Kolev's argument should be to the Jewish people, not say to them, no, we can go up. If Hashem wants us, we'll go up. He should have told them, look, how could you doubt God? But you've just seen, you've just experienced. He should have brought them some examples, real life examples that they just experienced. Why is he just telling them we can do it without explaining to them or without proving them that he can do it? Now, we have to remember that Egypt was one nation. Now, when they were going to the land of Canaan, to Israel, that was 31 nations had a hold in Israel. Explained elsewhere in the Tanakh, we see that actually there wasn't like 31 kings lived all in Israel. They all had, but each one of the kings 
had a little piece of Israel because Israel was so important. So Israel belonged a little piece to this king. It was 31 kings, as we learn in the, uh, in the prophets in Yeshua, that 31 kings were in, we have the seven nations, but then we had 31 kings in there. Uh, so maybe one is going to argue, I'm going to say, well, the Jewish people felt comfortable that God can win a war against the Egyptians because that's one nation. But here you got 31 nations. Maybe that's too much for God. You know, maybe that's, that's too much for him. But you can't say that because, you know, when the Jewish people were singing in the uh, song of Azyoshir, a part of the singing of the words that they were saying there is that the heart of all the kings of Canaan melted when they heard what took place at the splitting of the sea. And matter of fact, later on, 40 years later, when the spies went again to in Eretz Yisrael, in Israel, 40 years later, they listened in and the people were still talking about what took place 40 years beforehand, how God performed his miracles. They're all frightened because of Hashem. Because. And actually, Egypt at the time, even though it was one nation, but it was sort of the head of all the nations. All the nations were underneath Egypt. Actually, the Talmud says something very interesting, that even when God sends the Jewish people into exile, they're not in Israel, under other nations, but he always makes sure to send them to a nation which is a prestigious, which is a prominent nation. So at least if we're under a nation, it shouldn't be under some shemegegi over there. <laughs> it should be somebody, you know, somebody of, uh, of power, of, uh, who has strength, who's looked up to. So Egypt being the place where the Jewish people were enslaved was not just another country. It was the main, the head of all the countries. So it doesn't still add up, it doesn't still add up that the Jewish people uh, were afraid because this was 31 versus just one Egypt. It doesn't really add up. Matter of fact, just to uh, say, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was praying to God, eventually to forgive the Jews, because God was very upset after that, before he punished them that they should, uh, for 40 years, be in the desert. But Moshe Rabbeinu, even though you're saying, how could they go against Moshe Rabbeinu? Moshe Rabbeinu still prayed for them, and still protected them. And Moshe Rabbeinu says to God, why should the nations of the world, he couldn't get God to change his mind, so to speak. He says, why should the nations of the world say that you don't have the power to stand up against the 31 nations? So Moshe Rabbeinu did use that argument to Hashem. And Hashem almost said to him, look, just because of the desecration of my name, because people will say that Hashem doesn't have the power, I'm going to forgive them, or partially forgive them. But... Uh, so, but this is not really an explanation for us to really understand how come the Jews changed their mind. Now, what are we reading about all this story? Well, not, it's a nice story uh, about the spies, what happened. Uh, really, but, but you know, the Torah doesn't record all the stories that took place. The Torah records only those stories that have a, 
fundamental lesson have an important lesson for us to teach us something. And the Torah in this case doesn't just tell us in short the story that the spies came back with a bad report and the Jews spent 40 years in the desert and we have to make up for it or something like that in a very short uh, uh, two verses. The Torah goes through the arguments, what they were saying and what the other people were saying. Somehow we have the responsibility to learn, to understand and figure out something else must have been going on besides the superficial level, besides this that they were just afraid uh, or they're afraid about the, the, there must be something more um, so this is what the this is how the Rebbe explains it uh, it says like this that there is one thing the spies had a problem and they didn't really want to go into Israel for spiritual reasons besides that they said physical reasons that they can't conquer it they didn't want to go in for spiritual reasons and precisely because of some of the things that we said before while they were in the desert the entire conduct the entire way of life was a spiritual kind of life it was a life void of any work, any materialism, any exertion, no planting, no sowing. All their needs are provided. Everything is given to you. The bread that you have to eat comes down from the heaven. Now, of course, heavenly bread is spiritual bread. It doesn't have some of the perhaps... Uh, Negatives. It doesn't have any gluten. It doesn't have any. Uh, it doesn't have any calories. Calories. Okay. No, no Actually, yeah. There's no there's waste no to it. Waste. Yeah. No so it didn't have. It didn't have some of the dealings, and that's why there was no waste of it. So it was a spiritual kind. It was a. But their physical body was nurtured by spirituality. It was sort of a physical bread. But it was more, it was a spiritual kind. And the same thing is uh, with the water that they drank, as I said before. The entire conduct, it was like a, a spiritual life. It was like a whole, one big holiday. It was just holiday, no working, no doing, no, no worries, no problems, no, everything is just easy. Everything is good. Life is good. Everything is provided. Nothing needs to be gotten. Nothing has to be worked for. Now, they're going to come to Israel. Now, once you come to Israel, there's no more man, no more manna. There's no more well of Miriam. What are you going to do if you're going to want to have bread to eat? You're going to have to plow the ground. And you're going to have to sow the ground. And you're going to have to work very hard to go ahead and get the food that you need to sustain yourself. And the same thing goes with everything else. You're not going to have any water from the well of Miriam. You're going to have to dig the well. Or you're going to have to make sure that you get the water. You have to work hard for this. I know the paying that we pay here. We don't have the WMRI paying the water bills. But, you know, you, it's going to be, you're going to have to 
you're going to have to pay for it. There's going to be work for it. So, what the Maraglim said, what their argument was, they didn't think that they can sustain their spiritual level and remain holy even though they're going to be having to do, to deal all the time with physical, materialistic matters. They didn't, they wanted to stay holy, they wanted to stay spiritual, they wanted to be close to God, but they didn't see how they can accomplish that if they have to occupy themselves and most of the time they're going to have to spend, you know, running after how to pay the bills and how to do everything else that they need to do. And they had all these different kinds of worries. So they said, you know what? We'd rather stay in Kolel. You know, in Israel, I don't know if you heard, in Israel there's a whole big debate going on about uh, between the secular and the Haredi. The Haredi's lifestyle is that they want to sit in the Kolel, study in the Kolel the whole day. Not to confuse the Kolel here. This is a, just a jam of Kolel. It's called like a yeshiva, which they call, they sit and study. They don't do any work. And... You know, somebody once said, you know, that in Lakewood, Lakewood is known, it's a stronghold in, uh, in New Jersey. It's a place where there is a big yeshiva, Haredi yeshiva, uh, one of the biggest yeshivas in the United States. Anyways, and over there they say, and many young people choose a life of very little means, and they devote their lives to Torah. But some says, you know, it says in the Pirkei we learned in the ethics of our fathers, which says, it's, the world stands on three things, it says, Allah Torah, on the study of Torah, Allah Voda, on the, on the work or service, which we translate also to prayer, Al-Gamilut Chasadim, on acts of kindness. So it's basically Torah, prayer, and Al-Gamilut Chasadim. Torah, Voda, Gamilut Chasadim. So over there they translated Torah, means that the husband sits and studies Torah. Avoda means the wife goes out to work. <laughs> And gemilut chasadim means that the in-laws support them. Torah, <laughs> uh, but the Jewish people were like sitting in the kollel over there. The only thing is, God provided for them. Nobody else provided for them. God provided for them. And uh, matter of fact, the Talmud says that the Torah was given to these people. Because they were on a very high level. Because they were fully absorbed and fully spiritual. So they actually are the ones that got the Torah because they were on a high level. So they didn't want to go out. However, what we see that that's not what Hashem wants us to do. That's not the goal. Hashem didn't create angels. Hashem didn't create spiritual beings. Hashem didn't create the mana to fall down on a regular basis. The going in the desert was sort of a preparation. This was sort of a giving them the strength so that when they go out, they should be properly prepared. They should be strong. They should be ready. They have absorbed so much spirituality so that when they do go out into the world, they all have the tools, they have the means. Similarly to when young people get their education in the school, they build their character, they build who they are. So once they become adults, when they're mature, when they're ready, 
So they go out, they have the strength, what it takes to meet the challenges of day-to-day challenges, to meet the world with its challenges. So the Jewish people in the desert, that was just an introduction to what is to take place, to what the purpose is. But they wanted to remain with that introduction. But Hashem says, no, that's not the purpose and the goal. The ultimate goal is that you got to go out into the world, you got to work with the world, and you got to change that around and make the physical, the mundane. Take your day-to-day activity, your ordinary activity, make that holy. Not only when you're studying Torah, but when you're out there, what you're doing, make that holiness, make that, make that spiritual. So, this explains a little bit why the spies were able to convince everybody not to go. And how is it that these great miracles that they experienced was not enough to convince them that they're going to make it inside? Because they, their argument was that during the time that we were in the desert and God dealt with us in a miraculous way, Everything was miraculous. The bread was miraculous. The wars were miraculous. Everything was miraculous. Yes. Over there, we can understand that God can do and God can perform miracles beyond anyone's expectation. However, this is in the desert. But now God says... We're going into nature. No more miracles over here. Now we're done with the miracles. The miracles in the desert. Now we're going to have to deal with the world in the normal way. The normal way means the ways of nature. So at the time that we're dealing with spiritual matters that God can do miracles, that's understood. But when we're supposed to do things according to nature, how are we going to be able within nature itself to do away from to experience these miracles. God has to do things in the natural way because you see as soon as they came there there is no more well of Miriam, there is no more manna, there is no more clouds, there is nothing there. Their argument was in essence that God created nature and God wants it to be according to nature so what their argument was is they said in the way the language they used is that so to speak God himself cannot take out his vessels from there what does it mean referring to God cannot take them out from the land of Israel, the Canaanite, those kings. Why? Because even though they agreed that God is in charge of the world, but God can perform miracles in a supernatural way, when the conduct is supernatural. But when God is conducting things in a natural way, we cannot conquer, we cannot win the war 
against these kings when we're approaching it in a natural way. So, somebody's going to say, just to give it a demonstrated, that if Israel has to have an army, it has to have the best, the best ammunition, it has to have the best intelligence, it has to have uh, the best prepared soldiers, it has to have everything naturally. We have to have that. That's our command. Because we have to do things in a natural way. Is one going to say, therefore, because it's a natural way, therefore there could be no miracle? Therefore there could be no miracle, because if there's going to be a miracle, why do we need the army? Why do we need the best of everything? God is just going to give you the manna. But no, the manna was in the desert. Over here, God tells us that the fighting has to be done in a natural way. It has to be fighting with guns, with tanks, with planes. This is the way you fight. But yet, within that fighting itself, within the natural way itself, they say that Hashem is the boss, but He can't change nature, make nature do anything different than what nature does. Nature is nature for everybody. And therefore, if the nature of this is that our planes are outnumbered by the other one's planes, they are going to be able to win us. And the answer is no. That even though that Hashem tells us to use the nature, Yehoshua and Kolev, their argument is, they countered it by saying, if God wants, God can actually help us also within the nature, also within Israel, within the natural way of things, God can help us, and we are able to turn things around in the natural way. We can do things. We can see God's miracles. And there's two kinds of miracles, really. Actually, there is a miracle which is a supernatural miracle. That miracle only tells us that God isn't limited by nature. So when we see a miracle, which is an open miracle, then you see that God has the ability to do a miracle. He can break nature. Nature doesn't restrict Hashem. But Hashem is still restricted to above nature because He's doing a miracle. He's breaking the nature. So now He's doing something which is supernatural. But when God does a miracle within nature, which means that you're doing a natural thing, and you, the miracle takes place within the natural means of things, that means that Hashem is not restricted, not even in above nature. That nature and above nature can coincide together. That means that God performs miracles in a natural way. Which, which means, what? Which is greater. Which is, which is really what you uh, what we see all the times that um, we try to uh, sort of answer certain things that we see explain you know like we say phenomenon we see different phenomenon 
will tell you, we just saw a, 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 a beautiful video. Uh, a very short clip. This mother, this father, I'm sorry, going over with a young child, going over to the Rebbe. As you know, the Rebbe used to give out dollars to people for a blessing, to give to charity. So he'd give people, and people would line up, and the Rebbe would give everybody uh, a dollar. And while you pass by, there were like many miracles, very, various different blessings that took place. So you see on the video, this father goes over with the child, and he says to the Rebbe, he says, my child can't speak. You see it on the video. He says to the Rebbe, my child doesn't speak. The Rebbe turns to the child, and the Rebbe says, do you know how to say modani? Modani, that's the prayer in the morning prayer. The Rebbe turns to me, see it on the clip right there. Do you know how to say modani? And with a little prompting over there, and the Rebbe says to him, say it now. And the kids, in front of the video, right in front of you, start saying, with a little bit of prompting, In front of the video, right there. An open miracle. <laughs> the, the Rebbe says, the, the father says to the Rebbe, my child doesn't speak. The Rebbe tells him to read the kids start speaking. So then, somebody comes, so right away, so we see a miracle here. So then, somebody comes and says, uh, the father didn't say, my child can't speak. The father said, my, fa- my, my child doesn't speak clearly. Now, one is not going to argue from what you heard in the video that the child said it quite well, but wouldn't say that it was clearly. So now, there's no miracle anymore. Why? Because it's said another miracle. Then there's a clarification. An aunt of the boy who went by uh, wrote, and she says that at that particular point, my son, my nephew, that's her, ne- her husband's nephew, she says, he could not speak clearly at all. He, didn't, he could speak, but not clearly at all. What he said over there at that moment was beyond anything that he can ever say. But, she says, after he went to therapy, today he speaks clearly. You can't even tell that he has any physical impairment. So, if the Rebbe would tell him right away, start speaking, that would be an open miracle. That would be like the miracle of supernatural. Kid doesn't speak, all of a sudden speaks. He broke the nature. Here you see a miracle. But this was a miracle dressed up in nature, within the nature of the child, which means the child spoke a little bit, a little bit. And within that nature, he was able to go ahead and speak clearer more than he can ever do. And it was that energy and that blessing, of course, with the intervention of the doctors, which is part we have to do. But that's a miracle within the nature. That's a miracle within the nature. That doesn't negate the miracle. It makes the miracle that much greater because it's not a miracle that has to take away of nature, but it's a miracle that works within the nature. Within the nature of things, it works and makes, brings it up to the highest level. And 
this is really what was accomplished in Israel. So in Israel, it doesn't mean that we left the miracles behind in the desert, and now we're dealing with nature, and finished. One is forgotten. No. As I mentioned earlier, the Midbar was a preparation. The desert was a preparation for what's coming. It was the miraculous conduct of Hashem that helped us later on in Israel. So that while we're in Israel and while we do have an army and while they had to fight to conquer the land, it took him seven years to conquer all of Israel and it took him seven to distribute. Yes, everything, but within the nature, they saw the hand of Hashem. So in everything that we do, of course, it's dressed up in nature, but it's actually miraculous. It's a natural miracle, as you want to call it. It's a miracle which is within the nature in our Zen. Dresses ourselves up in, 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 in nature. So, how does this go back to what we started off with? So, briefly to uh, finish up, we, we talked about earlier, should we be all spiritual? Should we sit and study all day Torah and Davin? Or should we go out and associate with the world, do our work and do what we need to do? This is the difference between the idea of the Miraglim. The spies, they say, stay in the desert, seclude yourself, and don't, uh, don't associate with the world, don't work with the world. But that's not where the ultimate goal, that's not where you're going to get the miracles within the nature. You may get miracles, but that's not the ultimate. If you want the miracles within the nature, is you go out there and every day, when you take your mundane things, what you work at and what you do, and you utilize it, and you remember that this is God's world, and you remember that this is all Hashem's instructions, and you do what you're supposed to, then you're bringing in a little bit miracle into the nature, their natural things, and then you're fulfilling the intent of creation. God wants you to be in this world. Again, God didn't create us to be in the desert, only for a little bit. But the rest of the time we have to be... In our own lives, the same thing happens for most of us. Most of us are in a spiritual midbar, in a desert, in the sense that while we're students, while we're young, we don't have responsibility, financial responsibility, we don't have other obligations, and, you know, life is pretty good. I mean, we should uh, spend the time studying and accomplishing. That's pretty good. Some people... Wanna never want to go out of school. They want to stay in school. They don't want to get married. They don't want to start a family. They don't want to. They want to be spiritual. Some people want to start the day with davening and learning, but then they don't want to stop davening and learning. They want to stay there. And the answer is no. That this is the idea of the miracle. We have to go out into the world. We have to do uh, with the world. And when we find Hashem in the world then we find a greater level of godliness. We find a higher level of godliness. We find the level of godliness even in the world, in the Teva, in the nature, we find beyond the nature. And the same thing is also with dealing with other people. You know, sometimes we only want to associate with people of our liking, of our level. We don't want to go down to somebody else's level. We feel it beneath us. Or sometimes a person has an argument even he says, look, 
if I'm going to teach somebody else, they're going to be very happy. They might give me honor. They might tell me thank you. I might become arrogant. And, you know, once you become arrogant, maybe it'll lead to other bad things. We don't have to worry. A lot of times, your worries are not founded properly. You have to do things. Hashem wants us to do things in the right way. Don't worry about all the various different things. It might pull you down. Do it with the intent as a mission of Hashem to make this world a better place. Do it straightforward and Hashem will help you. That you're not going to make, you're not going to go away. Those mistakes, if Hashem will help, Hashem, God wants you, you will succeed, you'll do what's right. Don't be worried, don't be afraid that you're going to go wrong, that something is going to, that you're going to associate, they'll drag you down, or that you're going to become bad, or anything of that sort. Try to do what's right, and you will see that actually you'll be much more successful than you believed that you can do yourself. That you can actually, and we see it in front of ourselves. You know, how many, my own personal friends, and now, you know, all these years, I've seen various different students and various different people that went out on the Rebbe's mission to do shlichas, to go out in various different places. And there can be a million and one arguments, this isn't going to work, and that's not going to be, and that place is bad for him, it's somehow, uh, you know, it's safer sitting in uh, Crown Heights over there, it's better, and it'll work out. And there is like rationalizations, so many rationalizations. But at the end of the day, you see that if you go out and you do, you go out from the midbar, sort of, you go out from your cocoon, from your <laughs> bubble, and you go out into the world and you try to stay around. Of course, there's dangers, or you got to protect yourself to the best you can. We're not talking about that. But at the end of the day, if you do it, you will succeed and you will make the environment and the world around you into a better place and that's what we have to remember from the miraculum and that's why this is something which is applicable to us in our everyday life hope that we have the courage to go out and do more than we expect of ourselves and we will be successful it's a beautiful message